Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... These kind of fights about definitions have been going on for a long time, and they're kind of actually central to the story of why neoliberalism exists. Jeremiah Johnson on why this is not your parents' neoliberalism. I follow a lot of economics debates for this job, and also, you know, just for fun as well, if I'm being honest. And a few years ago, I noticed something about one of those debates. The word neoliberal was being thrown around a lot, and usually as an insult. And I had known that the word itself had a long history and that it's meant different things at different times, but I'd always assumed that neoliberal meant roughly the same as libertarian, that it was in favor of free markets, small government, free trade, and so on. So basically, the exact opposite of populist. So I wasn't shocked that it was part of so many arguments starting around the time of the 2016 election of the very populist Donald Trump. But the thing I noticed was that the critics of neoliberalism were defining it very differently from an emerging group of people who actually had started labeling themselves neoliberal, people who owned the label. And I don't mean that the two sides were analyzing the platform differently, where, you know, the critics hated it and the advocates liked it. What I mean is that they had entirely different conceptions of what the platform actually was, what specific policies were in it. The critics of neoliberalism might say something like, Neoliberalism means lower taxes, especially on rich people. It's against government interventions in the economy, like the minimum wage and other parts of the social safety net. And it means that unions are terrible and should be opposed. But then the people who actually call themselves neoliberal would say, no, we do like markets and capitalism, but we are fine with higher taxes on rich people. And we're okay with things like a higher minimum wage when the evidence supports it. And we're actually neutral on unions. Some are good, some are bad, but in principle, we have no real objection there. Now, I find these debates can be a little bit frustrating to watch. It feels like everyone is talking past each other online, in the press, on social media. And part of the reason is that they don't agree on the definition they're using, but also because the word itself, neoliberalism, is one of those words that can trigger a powerful emotional reaction, whether you like it or hate it. Just like the words capitalism or socialism, globalism, populism. And when you combine the confusion about what's being discussed with that emotional component, conversations about the policies themselves just kind of get lost. And I find that very sad. More conversations, better conversations about important economic issues are what we should all want, I think. So on the show today, I am speaking with Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah is the co-founder and political director of the Neoliberal Project, which is a movement to spread neoliberal ideas and which has chapters in a lot of cities. They organize conferences, they influence policymakers, and there's a podcast called the Neoliberal Podcast, of which Jeremiah himself is the host. And it's also where he speaks with not just other neoliberals, but, and I admire this, with critics as well. And so today's chat is running simultaneously on the Neoliberal Podcast, so check that out when you get a chance. On the chat itself, we go through a bunch of specific policies and the neoliberal stance on each policy, so that whether you're a critic or an advocate of neoliberalism, or maybe somewhere in between, you'll hopefully leave the chat with a better understanding of how neoliberals themselves define their platform. Here it is. Jeremiah Johnson, welcome to the New Bazaar. 
Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Here's where I want to start our chat. On your website, uh, I'm going to quote it here. Uh, There's a line that says, The neoliberal project works to advance a liberal society by creating a neoliberal identity. Uh, So why don't we begin by defining what you see as a neoliberal identity? Sure. So the first thing to know about how we define neoliberalism is that to be a neoliberal, you have to be a liberal. It's a subset of liberalism. It, It is included in the package. It's in the grand tradition of political and philosophical liberalism that goes back hundreds of years. Not the American version of liberal meaning left wing, but the more classical definition of liberalism, meaning tolerance and and some other virtues. Going back to Locke, John Stuart Mill, all these, you know, great, you know, classical philosophers who have really advanced the theories of equality of law, you know, the classical liberal freedoms, um, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly and press and the things like having a democratic government and the rule of law and equal rights before the law, all of that in the tradition of liberalism is kind of where we ground ourselves. Okay. And there's a lot of traditions that do that. What makes neoliberalism distinct as a kind of sub-brand within liberalism is our emphasis on a few things. We are capitalists. We think that capitalism is great and it is a driver of human prosperity and has been for hundreds of years the operation of mostly free markets has created an enormous amount of wealth around the world. We're also, though, not opposed to the welfare state. A lot of the most pro-capitalist people you see will then turn around and say, you know, any government spending is bad because it's opposed to capitalism. And we don't think that having a strong social welfare state and a capitalist society are opposed. We Those think, things are not mutually exclusive, that you can have relatively free markets, but you can also fund some kind of a welfare state, a safety net for people uh, with the wealth generated by the markets. Is that about right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things I like to say is that capitalism is extremely good at generating wealth. It's not necessarily the perfect system for distributing that wealth in the ways that society would find most equitable or, you know, the the ideal distribution, whatever that may be. So when people are in need, we can use this extreme wealth that capitalism generates to help people out. And, you know, it's funny in left of center politics these days saying like proudly, I think markets are good and, and capitalism is a pretty nice system is actually pretty controversial. It's It's almost less controversial to rail about how capitalism is the cause of all of our problems. But that's not the perspective we take. Okay. The, and, the one other thing that I would add sure. that's kind of a distinguishing characteristic for us is what you might call globalism. And that's an emphasis for us on immigration, on how incredibly beneficial immigration is to everyone, to the immigrant, to the country that receives the immigrant. It means free trade. It means just emphasizing the importance of international exchange of ideas, international institutions and cooperation. And, and so you can kind of pack all this under a uh, globalist tent, if you like to use that word. It's a pro-globalization platform, right? Absolutely. So the the three tenets of globalization usually are relatively free trade that is hopefully sort of supported, undergirded by global liberal institutions. It's immigration, and it's the free, relatively free flow of capital across borders. And all of those things can have certain side effects, but in general— they are good things that lead to more prosperity. That is the basic platform of, of neoliberalism when it comes to the globalist side of things, right? 
Yes. Okay. And, you know, there, there's a ton more policies. I can get into individual policies we support, we don't support. But I think those are some of the central totems that we rest on. Okay. The reason I wanted to start with the definition of neoliberalism is that so many debates about neoliberalism seem to use different definitions of the word. And so the critics of neoliberalism will often have one idea in mind of what neoliberalism means, and then the advocates will have a different definition. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about a different interpretation of the same basic ideas. I mean different definitions altogether. And it can be really frustrating to see these debates where you'll read one article that says, everyone hates neoliberals and here's why, right? There are a lot of those articles. There's a lot of those. And then you'll read an article or you'll read maybe something that that, uh, the neoliberal project has released arguing in favor of neoliberal ideas, but the ideas will be very different from what the critics had in mind. So I want to kind of start talking about the ways that people often talk past each other when it comes to neoliberalism. And here's what I want to do. I want to just point you to some of the ways that critics define it and then just sort of let you respond even point by point if you want and say if you agree that that's a tenet of neoliberalism or not, right? So uh, here are some of those basic ideas. Again, this is neoliberalism the way that critics have defined it. And I didn't just pull this whole cloth. I read a bunch of articles by those critics to see what they had to say. (laughs) So uh, low taxes – especially of the highest marginal tax rates, income tax rates. Uh, Neoliberalism, they argue, means deregulation. It means the privatization of public services and not having the government provide certain public goods, that the provision of those goods should be privatized. It is anti-union because unions, uh, by this definition, distort markets, and so organized labor is a thing to be opposed The argument that inequality is totally fine because it just reflects everybody getting what they have earned in the marketplace. So you can be okay with inequality. Uh, It's friendly to Wall Street, friendly to big corporations. And then there's a few other things, but all of it, I think, leads to a phrase that's used by neoliberalism critic Mike Konzel, a writer who's, I think, left-wing, but but one who I like and, and is very smart. We've actually had Mike you know, on, on the neoliberal. And you featured him on your own podcast. Yeah. And so he, he writes that a lot of this leads to, quote-unquote, market supremacy, which is the idea that neoliberalism means market-based thinking intruding into spheres of life or policy where it's maybe not appropriate, right? And where people end up thinking of themselves not as citizens, but as consumers and and not as workers, but as like walking human capital where they have to maximize what they can offer so that they can make as much money as they can, that kind of thing. So anyways, those are some of the ways that critics of neoliberalism define the word. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on where those definitions uh, are wrong, where you disagree, and sort of why you're trying to kind of recapture a different definition of the word. So my first reaction to that is that this is, a, a, <laughs> this is a wonderful definition of libertarianism okay. that, that's been provided by some of these critics. And you will kind of see that sometimes, that critics of neoliberalism will conflate neoliberalism and libertarianism as being the same thing, that neoliberalism is just when you want to slash every government program and slash every tax and privatize everything. And and there are instances in which I think privatization is good. There are instances where I think it's not good. My second reaction beyond just that first kind of flippant one is that these kind of fights about definitions have been going on for a long time. 
And they're kind of actually central to the story of why neoliberalism exists. If you think about the original neoliberals, and we go back to like Hayek and some of the the German ordo liberals who are doing stuff, you know, back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. These are early economic thinkers like Friedrich Hayek and yes. the, the, the so-called Austrian school of economics and so forth. Yes, the original Austrians, I would say, who were not as— These are like laissez-faire thinkers, right? We should explain this to our listeners who aren't familiar with, with these yes. guys. Very hands-off, government shouldn't touch things, right? In many senses, but they were also living in a different time than we live. Sure. And what's important to remember is the context that they were living in. They were living in a world in the 30s and 40s that was dominated by— literal Nazi fascism, actual Nazism. And then on the other side of the political spectrum, you had this ascendant Stalinist communism. And they were looking at... Yeah, autocracies left and right everywhere. Left and right autocracies, some of the worst in human history. And they're looking and seeing, you know, is liberalism dying? You know, we've had this grand liberal tradition for a while now. Is liberalism under threat? And their answer was, obviously, it's under threat. And so they felt the need to kind of revitalize classical liberalism, that pure laissez-faire liberalism, into something new that could withstand these threats. That was very explicitly their thinking, and so they coined neoliberalism. And that is an an inspiration for me in terms of, you know, liberalism, I, I think, has a tradition of standing up to threats like that. And I think the challenge for liberalism is constantly reinventing itself. You could almost think of us as the new neoliberalism, which is a phrase I would never actually use. But <laughs> I was actually going to use a different phrase, which is that you're looking for inspiration to these guys in the 1930s and 40s. And even though the word neo obviously is in the front of neoliberalism, it's almost like a retro neoliberalism. <laughs> so, that something like that. Something like that. But I want to actually fill in the gaps on the history here because this is important. So uh, you have this first wave, I guess, of neoliberals in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and so forth. Um, but what's, what's interesting about them is that the term actually goes out of use for a while. They kind of debate using this term and some of them, you know, become influential. Hayek becomes very influential. Milton Friedman becomes very influential. But they didn't actually self-identify as neoliberals very often, if ever. And really, the next time you see the term come into prominence is in left-wing academic journals in kind of the late 70s and early 80s. And that's where the people using that term have kind of rediscovered it and begin to use it as an insult. And that's kind of where this neoliberalism is when you want to privatize everything and, you know, our our Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan incarnate. Deregulate, low taxes, et cetera. So the Mm. critics essentially start using it as a way of criticizing the sort of move towards a market-oriented direction, which happened, I think, out of a backlash of the 1970s, which in economic terms included very high inflation. It included a period of stagflation where you had both a recession and high inflation. uh, And Also, a number of governments and advanced economies did start moving, I think, in a more market-oriented direction. And some sort of holdouts who didn't want that to happen, they started saying, hey, you're becoming a neoliberal. Is that about right? That's about right, yeah. And, I mean, this goes back to, like, Jimmy Carter, who even, like, Reason, who is a libertarian organization, calls the great deregulator. You know, Jimmy Carter, I think, helped deregulate the airlines, which has worked out fantastically, helped deregulate... uh, some parts of the alcohol industry, which left, led to the craft beer boom. So, like, there are some instances where we think deregulation has gone really well. 
Right, other... Jimmy Carter, neoliberal hero. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny. When you can get Reason.com to, to call you the great deregulator, um, that means there, there must be something there. Okay. So we're in the 80s, and neoliberalism is now being used as an insult by its critics, right? Yes. Take us through from there to like where you are now, where you're essentially trying to recapture, I think, a different understanding of neoliberalism, right? Yeah. Our project started in... I would say late 2016, early 2017. And it literally just grew out of a frustration. There were people gathering in online spaces, actually in kind of an economic subreddit where people would just gather to discuss politics and economics from kind of the econ grad student perspective. And the majority of users there supported Hillary Clinton in the 2016 contest. And for this, they would occasionally get called, you know, neoliberal shills and, you know, you dirty neoliberal corporate sellout, blah, 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 sellout, that kind of thing. Yeah. Sure. And so eventually if they just said, look, if, if being like part of the Obama Hillary wing of the Democratic Party means being a neoliberal, fine. That's what we are then. And someone created some online spaces, uh, a subreddit, a Twitter account for this. And to our great surprise, they exploded in popularity. They became so popular that we had to keep adding people and we started a podcast. People spontaneously started meeting in big cities in San Francisco and New York and other places. And that turned into us having chapters. And eventually we just looked at this and said, there's enough momentum that we need to make this a, a real organization sure. and start doing something with this. Yeah. Let, let's go through some of these uh, other critics' definitions of neoliberalism and, and just give me a sense of like whether or not this is something that you totally disagree with or if it's something where maybe there is something to it, but you would put a different spin on it. So start with just lower taxes. What's the neoliberal view on that, according to like, say, the neoliberal project? So for a lot of these, the answer is always is going to be it depends. Sure. And it's it's a lot easier if you have like zero nuance answers. And I can just tell you, we've got to raise taxes on and give you this real impassioned speech or, sure. you know, taxes are theft and you should never blah, blah, blah. It's less satisfying to say like it depends, but it really does. There are some taxes that should be raised, some taxes that should be lowered. I think right now, personally, I would say that taxes on the rich can be raised in order to help fund some of the welfare state that people require. The one thing I, I mean, would- that's a clear difference with the critics who yeah. I think would say that it's a neoliberal idea to lower the highest marginal especially, income tax rate. Especially if you are talking about the rich, the the 1%. Among our membership, it would pull very well to raise their taxes, especially because really? the Trump uh, tax bill lowered their taxes substantially. I think you'd see very high support for taking it back to where it was under Obama. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, on deregulation, I'm sure that also would elicit an it depends response. But do you have like a basic philosophy on like where regulation is appropriate and where maybe it's harmful? Yeah. And I'd love to dive into that more in depth. Sure. Um, and maybe we can do that in a second. But deregulation, I'll accept that we want to deregulate more than our critics do. It's not everything, but it's many things. I pointed out airlines and craft beer as examples of deregulation gone right in yeah. the past. There's other areas that I think desperately need deregulating in our economy, like the housing market is just absolutely gunked up with local regulations. Most of this is at a very, a very, very local level. And yeah. so it's hard to get kind of sweeping national change. Yeah, we just had a show about this. So it's the neoliberal view that a lot of these kind of zoning codes that prevent more building of housing should be undone so that you can have more housing supplies. All right? Yes. Okay. And, and the general process is also a problem. Not Zoning is a problem, but the general process of community input is also a problem. 
because America, frankly, is drowning itself in community input to the degree where nothing can ever get done. And, you know, it, we're just we're drowning in, in kind of process. It's funny because I, I sort of have the sense that there's also agreement with you on that from people that might consider themselves critics of neoliberalism, like people on the left, especially who've been sort of coming around to the view that encouraging more housing supply, more home building actually would be a good thing, right? I'll tell a funny story about this. At least it's funny to me. <laughs> uh, Yimbyism, the whole yes in my backyard movement that's yes. very, very pro-housing is very much part of our repertoire. It, it's very much associated with us, I think, to the point where I have seen left-leaning Yimbies get very angsty about how they're a Yimby, and now people think they're a neoliberal because they express Yimby views. <laughs> they don't want to wear and, and a neoliberal them, label. Right? That's that's very dirty. They're like Yimbyism can't be seen as a neoliberal thing, and yeah. I'm I'm in the background, kind of fist pumping, going like, "Hell yeah, I'm happy for <laughs> neoliberalism to be associated with Yimbyism because I think Yimbyism is awesome." Okay, uh, what about the privatization of public services and sort of which public goods are appropriate for the government to provide and which uh, maybe would benefit from privatization. Again, is there is there a general thinking on how this works? I, I don't have a general statement here. I think you just have to dive into the specifics. There are some things that, that are important. I think education is obviously a public good that the state should provide. Just to use a, a really obvious example, I think there are many places where you shouldn't have public goods, for instance, food. Um, you know, I, I think it's much better if you need to help people with food that the existing SNAP system is fine. We don't have government stores selling government produce. What we have is a free market where we give people some vouchers. Ideally, we would give them cash. But in, in the meantime, we give them just vouchers for food and say, go buy whatever food you want, rather than government provision of, of food. And, you know, that that strikes me as incredibly unnecessary. And if anybody proposed it, they would probably be laughed at. But it's an example of when a public good might be necessary versus not. It's, it's, I, I actually, I, you said something that I think might strike critics of neoliberalism as kind of surprising, which is that you said it almost as a throwaway, but you said, you said, and I think you used the word, obviously, the state should provide education. In other words, that's a very pro-public school stance, whereas I think critics of neoliberalism might say, well, these guys probably want to privatize everything that they want you know, the entire educational system to be private schools or maybe charter schools, which are privately run, but do receive some government funding. But you're saying that actually there's room for a public school system inside of neoliberalism. Many of our users are positive on charter schools, but this is the kind of thing where the state would still be picking up the bill in the end, not that private citizens would have to pay to educate their own children and they would have no choice mm -hmm. for a public option. I've never heard anyone in our camp of any kind. Uh, argue for privatizing. Argue for total privatization okay. of schools. Yeah, okay. that, that sounds to me like something you would see in a hardcore libertarian <laughs> forum. You know? Okay. One question I would have, though, is what are sort of the outcomes you're looking for in these areas where you do differ, for example, from libertarianism and where there is, I think, some overlap with what I think traditionally might be like left-wing views like, you know, hey, we should have a well-funded, well-functioning public school system um, and that other kinds of public goods should be provided by the government and they should have, you know, the support that they need and not be underfunded and so forth. My abstract answer is that what I want in the end is to maximize human flourishing. 
And that's a very broad, ambiguous statement. Right. Yeah, who but, doesn't want that, right? <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to maximize human flourishing. I like, you know, reading Amartya Sen, who has a, a theory of freedom, that freedom is not just the negative freedom that kind of libertarians talk about, freedom from things, freedom from government repression and, you know, from formal power. And uh, you, you might have heard the non-aggression principle is big there. But freedom also means the freedom to live your life in the way you want, that if you are in a perfect libertarian society with no government, but you're living under a bridge, you know, homeless, you are meaningfully unfree in that you cannot pursue the life you would like to lead. And whether so it's longstanding debate in libertarian circles, too, it's not just freedom from the government interfering in your life, but also freedom from things like poverty, mm-hmm. right? Freedom from, I don't know, danger and, you know, the surrounding threats from your environment. And so maximizing this kind of total view of freedom to me means that you have to do a lot of hard decisions. You have to make a lot of hard choices about, is this program going to be more efficient than this other program? It's going to help this amount of people, but it will have this cost. You've kind of just got to dive into the details. And one thing that I love about our movement is that it's filled with people who respect kind of the technocracy and respect expert opinion and are willing to kind of have these conversations about are the details on this actually going to make sense? And I think this is one of the reasons that we differ from the original neoliberals like Hayek and Friedman. Hayek was one of the very first people, not the exact first, but he was one of the first people to really publicize the idea of universal basic income. So he was against kind of what he saw as the meddling of the state, but he was in favor of very simple mechanisms like, why don't we just give every poor person a set amount of cash? And you know, if we look at the society we live in today compared to the, the 40s when they were talking about this, number one, we have a lot more state capacity than we did in the 40s, I think. The, the government reaches further, and it has gradually grown, and, and that's over time. That's fine. And number two, we live in a much more prosperous society. In the United States and globally, wealth has exploded everywhere. We are much, much richer than we've ever been. And so the amount of good that we can do with all this fantastic economic growth we've had, is is more. And why shouldn't liberalism change to reflect that? Mm-hmm. Uh, unions, what is your thinking on unions, or what is the sort of modern neoliberal thinking on unions? I don't think we have a defined stance on unions. I think that there's a broad feeling that public sector unions are often quite bad, especially police unions and things like police unions, that they're literally bargaining against the public. And, against and in, the taxpayer. In against other words, the yeah. taxpayer. And the then two also public just, sector unions that come under the most criticism, I think, are police unions, partly because they end up bargaining for essentially immunity from prosecution for police officers who act badly. And then, of course, there's teachers unions, yes. and they're the subject of a lot of controversy. They are the subject of a lot of controversy, especially this last year where you see there's the perception that teachers unions are acting in their own interest and not in students' interests. There have been many teachers unions that have been tried to keep schools closed rather than open when that may be harming students. I think police unions are, among our group, almost universally considered bad. Teachers unions are also considered somewhat bad. but Problematic, not, maybe? Problematic. Not, not okay. nearly as bad as police unions, though, which okay. have a special place in our heart. In right, criticism yeah. of police unions okay. has a special place in our heart. And what about private sector unions? What is the neoliberal position on private sector unions? I don't think we have a defined position. We certainly have some of our members who are more pro-union, some who are more anti-union. For me, it's kind of I'm neutral. They can be good or bad, and I just I don't take an ideological stance there. Okay, cool. Uh, The 
friendliness to Wall Street and big corporations. Uh, your thoughts on that particular criticism? I, I don't Not think true. it's true. I don't think it's accurate. I mean, there are instances where I, we will defend big corporations because we think they're being attacked unjustly. I think this has happened a lot with tech companies for some reason that I, I honestly have a hard time parsing because it's different reasons for different people. But Republicans are mad at big tech for one reason, because mm-hmm. they kicked Donald Trump off Facebook and Twitter or whatever. Democrats are mad at them for another reason, because tech has produced a lot of billionaires and that's an unforgivable sin. Regular people kind of just, when you do polling, seem to really love Google, really love Amazon. They want privacy respected, but like there's public opinion polling that asks about all of the institutions in modern American life. And so they'll ask about Congress. They'll ask about your local police. They'll ask about the president. They'll ask about Google and Amazon and other big companies. And they'll ask about the military. Google and Amazon are number two and number three on that list, only behind like our soldiers in -hmm. terms of popularity. Facebook is almost last, which is funny to me, but most most tech companies are are really well liked. And so there's instances where we will defend big corporations, as as a critic would say it. But there's other instances. You were making air quotes by right yeah. there when you said that. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to okay. do that in a sarcastic voice. <laughs> there's instances where we will defend big corporations. <laughs> there you go. But, Audio uh, medium. Okay. <laughs> but there's other instances where we'll slam them, where, you know, like you know, there's monopolies that should be broken up. And I don't think the tech companies are those monopolies. I think you have to look at like regional hospital chains, which is not a sexy subject to cover, but regional hospital chains are awful monopolies. You know, telecom companies are awful monopolies. I've, I've lived in apartments for 15, 17, 18 years and never had a choice of internet provider. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's absurd. These are the monopolies I worry about. Not like Facebook is a monopoly because they're the only blah, blah, like, I don't know. So, so again, case by case basis is the neoliberal approach to like antitrust, big companies, and whether or not they're sort of unfairly capturing a big share of the market versus fairly capturing a big share of the market. Is that is that an accurate way to describe it? I am terminally addicted to nuance. Okay. And I mean, look, it's, good. There, good. There's you a trend. There's a trend. People I think. Be. There's a trend, I think, in the Democratic Party, especially, which is where we operate politically. We've chosen to kind of operate in the center left in the current context and happy to talk about why we do that. But so we mostly operate in kind of the centrist sphere of the Democratic Party. And there's a trend within the Democratic Party that I call maximalism. That is like all government is good. All spending is good. All taxes are good. Tax the rich even more. Every tax is a good tax. Every regulation is a good regulation. Every effort to break up a company is a good effort. The only way a program can be bad is if it should have been more and you see this thinking with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, and the left-leaning crowd where it's just everything is always good, more, 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 more. And that's some of what we try to push back on. You know, sometimes this becomes almost comical. Like during the, I remember during the 2020 primary, Elizabeth Warren uh, released a 6% wealth tax, which would be by far the highest in the world, higher than any other country, anywhere in the world. It was completely unworkable. It was a terrible idea. And three days later, Bernie Sanders released an 8% wealth tax just because he could. Like top that, yeah. that kind of thing. Sure. So that's that's the trend that I like to push back on is this maximalist trend of all spending is good. All taxes are good. Every regulation is good. And if you disagree, you're a neoliberal bootlicking shill. You know. And- <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that sort of summarizing phrase that, again, I'm, I'm borrowing from Mike Konzel, um, that neoliberalism leads to market supremacy, according to the critics of neoliberalism. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you would 
push back quite strongly on that. But is it something that you worry about that uh, if you do embrace, for example, a sort of, you know, very markets friendly approach, a very capitalist friendly approach that it might start intruding on parts of our lives where maybe that kind of markets based thinking is not appropriate? What is your thinking on that criticism? I don't worry about that too much, to be honest. I think that markets are a tool, much like government is a tool, and society can structure itself to take advantage of these tools to lead to the most human flourishing possible. Markets are an enormously valuable tool, and I think, you know, you look at the explosion of economic growth over the last few hundred years, it's just very clear to me how much market economics has benefited the human race. That doesn't mean markets are perfect, and that doesn't mean markets are the tool for every situation. But I, you know, it's in the face of all of this good that markets can do, we'll fix the problems that come up when when markets overstretch or when they're used in inappropriate ways. We can deal with it. We're an advanced society. We can figure out how to how to ameliorate those problems. But I, I just don't worry about like, oh, markets are the worst thing. Markets are dominating life in ways that make everybody worse off. Mm -hmm. That's not how I see the world. Uh, There's a reason I wanted to start with this long discussion of definitions and what neoliberalism actually means. Uh, And it's not just because I'm fascinated by these debates. And it's not just because, by the way, a lot of my own personal views overlap quite strongly with the kinds of thinking that you just described. We'll get you sooner or later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's because I think that you've set yourself quite a difficult task uh, for a couple of reasons. One reason is because the word already existed and has undergone these kinds of shifting definitions through the years, through the decades, and because so many people were already opposed to it by a different definition from the one that you're using. So it's not just that you have to change their minds about the specific ideas and the policies that you support. You also have to change a kind of entrenched definition that they might already have. The second thing, and this is something that is common to, I think, every kind of political or policy movement is that when you label yourself something and it becomes a kind of a part of your identity, it actually becomes hard to embrace the kind of nuance that you just said you're sort of terminally addicted to, right? Because the kinds of things that persuade people tend to actually be quite simple messaging, you know, memorable, sticky. And what you're arguing for is a set of ideas that does have quite a bit of nuance, but it's hard to sell in a very simple way, I think. And so I'm fascinated by it, and I'm kind of just curious to get your thinking on like the obstacles that you were facing from the beginning and, and certainly I think are still facing now in terms of shifting people's attention and changing people's minds uh, to your way of thinking. The history of the word neoliberal for us is both a curse and a blessing. Right. In that it's a blessing it helped us get a ton of attention very quickly. There's this this group of people that self-identifies They're as neoliberals. It? What are they nuts? Right. Who would call themselves a neoliberal willingly? We, you know, it, it led to a lot of coverage. It led to a lot of outraged responses, which of course drew people in, and a lot of people decided they actually liked what they saw. So, in one sense, it's been very, very useful. It's provocative. It, you know, the internet works on provocative material, gets attention, and and so that's been really awesome for us. The downside is that, yeah, it does turn some people off. And as our organization has grown and we are now doing outreach with actual members of Congress and the governors of certain states and 
we held our first national conference at the end of March, beginning of April, and we had four Congress people attending, um, one senator, countless Wait, state- Wait, who was the senator who showed up? Uh, John Hickenlooper. Okay. Delivered a speech um, along with, I'm trying to think- uh, Does he self-identify as a neoliberal, by the way? He does not, but we do have a couple. Okay. We do have a couple. Of um, like, of people in Congress, you mean? Yes. Yeah, I'm okay. not sure if I should put them on blast, because again- <laughs> Have they not revealed this publicly? <laughs> They're just like in touch with you guys? Well, again, the the- the challenge is that, yeah, there's a little bit of leeriness for some of these very official folks to join a group that says neoliberal on the front. And so that's a little bit of a challenge. Some of our— it seems uh, like that's the first thing you got to change, actually, is to turn neoliberal, not from a word that's, like, divided between critics defining it one way and supporters defining it a different way, but just turning it into a word— that means a certain set of ideas and it doesn't trigger that visceral response. Because, like, that's got to be tough because on both sides, if you love it or you hate it, when you hear the word neoliberal, there's a good chance you're going to respond to it. So there's two thoughts there. One is that a lot of our local chapters have actually started referring to themselves as the new liberals rather than neoliberal. Okay. And we, we leave that up to each local chapter to decide if you want to identify that way. It's a one-letter change. doesn't bother us. You can, you can do what you like. For local context, you know, in San Francisco, the context of neoliberal may be different than it is in Tennessee. And, and that might be different. You know, we have chapters in uh, Brazil and the UK and Taiwan and a bunch of places in Bangladesh and uh, all over the world. And so the context may be very different in all those places. So we allow them that freedom. Over time, I suspect more and more of them will migrate to new liberal because it's an easier sell. But that's thought number one. Thought number two is that I'm optimistic about the long-term ability for us to do this because there's another very good example of it already having happened with the word socialism. Mm. Socialism for decades and decades was a slur in the United States. It was a political slur word that you only use to attack your enemies. And, you know, that's that's communism. That's socialism. That senator is a socialist. And for decades, that was a, a real bad accusation. But there was a group of people who took that word and said, we're going to own it. We're going to build up our own movement. And now they have members of Congress who are democratic socialists, many of them, in fact. And, you know, in, in terms of the organizational structure of the DSA and their ability to— The, the Democratic Socialists of America. Yeah, the right. Democratic Socialists. The DSA has done a fantastic job of taking an unpopular brand and using that unpopularity and kind of the— Like jujitsuing it into something else? That does cause confusion still for and a lot of consternation amongst democratic socialists because they get criticized sometimes of being like, oh, my God, you guys are socialists. And they say, no, there's a difference. We're democratic socialists. They actually argue within the DSA itself about whether or not they are some different kind of European style social democracies, but they call themselves democratic socialists versus, no, we want to we want to reestablish something like the socialism that did exist at different points in the 1900s, minus all the murder and, and oppression. And, and they have to explain themselves. And, like, well, there's and even still then, confusion there. Even then, they all, I, I'm going to be honest, I, I think that a lot of democratic socialists don't actually know what they mean, because some of them will look at Denmark and say, that's what we want. We want that kind of socialism. And Denmark will kind of shrug at them and be like, we're not socialists. You know, we have our, a right wing party controls our government. <laughs> right now. Uh, so some of them are like that. Some of them are like Stalinists. We have a city councilwoman in New York City who <laughs> one of her supposed political advisors is literally like some 20-year-old kid who is on Twitter like quoting Mao and Stalin and talking about how they were great guys. It's weird. So, But not, not to go down that road, but on, only to say... 
Well, but there's, 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 there's an important point to make here, yeah. though, which is you were saying yeah. that, in fact, there has been a at least somewhat successful attempt to change the meaning of a word that was loaded before mm-hmm. into something that's maybe less loaded now. And I agree that that effort is ongoing. It's still problematic, but it has succeeded in some ways. And so you're saying maybe you can pull off something similar with neoliberalism. Yes, okay. absolutely. I want to do a a quick summary of sort of the basics of neoliberalism before doing a sort of speed round on like specific policy questions. Sure. Yeah. So in summary, uh, neoliberalism differs from libertarianism in that libertarianism is far more laissez-faire hands off than neoliberalism. Is that basically a correct statement, like a a decent place to start? Correct. We're we're far more friendly to the social welfare state and to regulations that would correct imperfections in the market. Okay. So you like the markets, you like capitalism, the ability of markets to generate wealth. And if you're going to intrude on that, there should be a good reason. But once you allow that wealth to be created, then you are open to a whole host of ideas for how to make sure that everybody sort of benefits from the virtues of the markets. Is that fundamentally correct? Yeah. And I think there's even a case to be made, a strong case that this sort of thing is pro-growth, that having a basic safety net is a pro-growth measure that will ensure that everybody can participate in capitalism. It could also, I think, make sure that people don't have a sort of aggressive backlash to markets as well if they are, in fact, benefiting from them. So it's it's not just that it might be pro-growth in terms of boosting the rate of economic growth. It can also ensure the survival over time of a market-based system. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. There was a moment, I think, during the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, George W. Bush was still the president then, and they were about to put in place one of the interventions. It might have been TARP, but I don't remember specifically, where he said something like, we have to interfere with the free markets in order to save the free markets. And I think a lot of people may have attributed that to like a typical George W. Bush blunder, right? Like he misspoke or something. But actually, I see a lot of wisdom in that idea. This was basically something that Keynes also, the economist, the famous economist advocated, you know, that occasionally you actually do need aggressive counter-cyclical economic policy to make sure the economy keeps growing and that people don't get thrown out of work in order to reinforce support for a markets-based system that can work so well if you allow it to. I think basic Keynesianism has has had a great moment in the last few decades where it's become very obvious that, yes, the case for deficit spending in times of need is very, very strong. We kind of fit both sides of the Keynesian story. In, In times of recession and in times of economic slump, the government should step in and provide stimulus. The flip side of that is that when times are good, you should ease off the gas. You should not continue to just do permanent stimulus forever when when unemployment is at three and a half percent, say. Otherwise, you might end up with some inflation. So Keynesianism is also consistent with neoliberalism then. Yeah, right? absolutely. You know, depending on what you're, you're referring to, what specific part of Keynesianism you mean. Okay. Let's talk about some specific policy ideas then, if you don't mind. Sure. Let me start with uh, what I'm going to refer here in this interview as the China problem. We recently did an episode of The New Bazaar that was all about Hollywood's relationship with the Chinese government, essentially, where if you start from the premise that free trade between two countries can be quite good from an economic standpoint, you still might end up in a situation where it could be bad from the standpoint of maintaining like basic fundamental values, in this case, 
freedom from censorship, for example, and where Hollywood has essentially, yes, sold a lot of box office tickets to the Chinese audience, but they've also, in a way, imported back into the U.S., a violation of freedom from censorship and, and a free speech violation, right? And this, this kind of sucks, right? I mean, it, it's a horrible sort of, you know, clash and a very sad clash of values because I myself am extremely pro-free trade. You almost won't find a free trade deal that I will say is a bad idea. And in general, I like the idea of liberalizing trade between countries. But I have to admit, it can have these big side effects, it can have these big negative consequences. So what is the sort of neoliberal approach to a country that has some pretty basic neoliberal ideas already embedded in it, like the U.S., trading with an autocratic regime like China or, frankly, anywhere else? So this is a really good question. And unfortunately, it's a really tough one. And I wish I kind of had my scripted two-minute answer where I could tell you, <laughs> you know, if you, we just did X, Y, and Z, that would be the thing that would get China to stop being a repressive nightmare autocracy that does genocide all the time. But I, I don't. I don't have that answer because <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure anybody does, by yeah. the way. This is just a tough one, you know. I, I don't think there is an easy answer to how do we deal with China. Personally, I, I'm, I'm just unsure about the correct thing to do here. I don't think we should let the Uyghur genocide go unpunished. And I support many of the measures that have been taken in terms of uh, you know, uh, banning goods from uh, from that region. Yeah, from that sure. region, and I would potentially even support harsher measures. But I'm unsure how far those things should go, partially because I don't know how effective they'll be. I, you know, if we completely cut off all trade with China, would that actually improve China's domestic political situation, or would it turn them even more repressive and more anti-Western and just make everything worse? I think that's actually probably the more likely thing if we were to do the, the nuclear option of just cut off all trade. So that doesn't seem like a good idea to me. On the other hand, in other instances, it could be. You know, Part of the reason China is hard to deal with is because they've got more than a billion people and they're the second largest economy in the world behind ours. And so they can't be bullied in that sense. If this was a different, smaller country and we could get a bunch of allies to all say, we will cut off trade unless you do X, Y, and Z, for smaller countries, that can work. I think with South Africa, the pressure from all of the economic embargoes uh, when apartheid was happening had a real effect. And that's because South Africa is not this giant global monster of an economy that can just do what it wants with very little consequence. South Africa is very dependent if they want to maintain their standards of living. So a lot of this, again, which particular country are you talking about? Is your action more likely to make the situation better or worse? It's a really hard question, and it's a, a question that I hope we have really smart people working on because the answers seem really non-trivial to me. Yeah, it's it's not at all uh, a trivial answer. And also, I myself don't go as far as to think that cutting off all trade with China would be good. I still think that much of the deepening integration with China does have some pacifying effect. We just can't witness it because we're talking strictly about a counterfactual, and you never have that available in a situation like this. But I also worry about China's effect on, for example, on Hollywood, what it's doing to the American movie industry. I worry about the theft of intellectual property that often happens when American companies do set up operations over there. There's all kinds of issues. And like you, I hope there's smart people working on it. But I also don't think that just cutting off trade entirely 
would make things better. I mean, I think we've existed in a world in the past where we had trade basically cut off with entire regions of the world. It was known as the Cold War. And that certainly wasn't more, I think, you know, that wasn't less threatening than the world that we live in now. Yeah, the Cuban embargo has not worked. No, you know, it hasn't. The, the USSR collapsed because of their own internal contradictions, not because we didn't trade with them. And so it, there's this question of would it even do anything? I don't think that means we should do nothing. And I do think, you know, look, we're in competition with China. I hope that the Chinese people flourish and become rich and prosperous. And I, every human deserves to have a have a wealthy, healthy life, right? And I think that the strides that have been made in China to just enrich regular middle-class people, China has a middle class for the first time in its history. That's wonderful. And I would never want to take away the hundreds of millions of people that have been dragged out of poverty. That's one of the greatest modern achievements that that hundreds of millions of people are now out of poverty in China, as opposed to being wildly impoverished like they were a few decades back. But at the same time, their government is a nightmare genocidal state that is totalitarian in nature and is very much trying to build that kind of world. They don't want a world like the United States wants where liberal democracy is respected and liberalism and liberals' core ideas flourish. Yeah. That's they're, they're trying to build a different world and and they are an enemy of liberalism. Yeah. Moving back to U.S. domestic policy, uh, the healthcare sector. Uh, you mentioned earlier that there is a problem with anti-competitive behavior, the monopolies of local or regional hospital systems. More broadly, though, government-provided universal healthcare system, is that consistent with neoliberalism? So healthcare is one of those markets where it is a wildly, wildly imperfect market to the point where the market is basically just broken. The way that market mechanisms work breaks in the case of healthcare. And there's a ton of ways in which it breaks. It's not, it's not just two or three ways. It's like a dozen. You can talk about monopoly is a big issue. This is uh, for drugs, uh, for device manufacturers, for hospital chains. You can talk about monopsony, where if you're a nurse or you're a specific kind of doctor in a lot of places, there's like one big hospital chain in your city, and they own all the hospitals. So if they fire you, you don't have another choice for where else to go uh, you, You'll certainly yeah. be very limited in many instances. Right. There's massive asymmetrical informational frictions. If you want to get into the nerdy econ stuff, you know, people don't know what they need. They wouldn't know if they were being given bad information, so they kind of just blindly right. accept whatever they're told. You know, if your doctor shows you a thing on a CAT scan and points to some glob and says, this needs surgery— you don't know whether he's talking correct, whether he's talking sense, whether he's making something up. Yeah, let me tie this together for our listeners, by the way, because you mentioned that healthcare is an imperfect market. Well, one of the ways that a market can be imperfect is when not every player has the same information. There's an information asymmetry. Well, here, the doctor, the nurses, or the hospital administrators, they all have more information about what's happening with your specific you know, case, your medical case, than you do, which gives the potential for you to end up essentially paying for stuff that you don't need or overpaying for stuff that you do need. And, and just the ways that markets operate, typically, if, you, if you're buying apples, it's easy for you to look at an apple and see whether it's good quality or not. And certainly, if you just bite into it after, you know, you'll, you'll know instantly, is this a good apple or a bad apple? You don't have any way to look at, like, a hospital and know, you know, if I go for a colonoscopy, is this a good colonoscopy or a bad one? There's no real quality metric that, you, like, you can say, oh, some website has aggregated, you know, customer review. But, like, that, let's be honest. Number one, nobody looks at that. Number two, it's not even useful. You also can't even look at prices, 
The other way that markets work is you look at the price of an apple and you say, well, this is crap. I'm going to go down to the street and his apples are cheaper. Again, you can't really do that. Hospitals typically don't list their prices. Again, some people have started publishing their books, but nobody looks at them. Yeah, there's problems with this market. So is the neoliberal solution then something that would encourage a certain amount of government intervention in order to fix what's broken in these markets or yeah. simply the government provision of healthcare itself, what's what's known as like single payer healthcare. Yeah, and I, I could I have more examples by the way, but I won't list them all. There's uh, there's <laughs> yeah. moral there's moral no, hazard, I, there's the adverse point, yeah. selection, you know, blah blah blah. There's externalities, but the short answer is yes. There is a clear case for government intervention into healthcare markets. I don't pretend to be enough of a policy expert to know which model is best. What I do know is there are many models that work better than the U.S. system. There are <laughs> single-payer models in many countries that are better run than the U.S. healthcare system is. There are multi-payer models in, in many countries that have both kind of a government-provisioned healthcare and private healthcare. There's places like the Netherlands, which essentially works on kind of an Obamacare plus-plus kind of model. All of them work better than what the U.S. currently has. So I'm open to conversation about what that should be. But overall, there, there should clearly be some level of government intervention into healthcare markets because they don't work on their own. Excellent. Okay. Uh, the minimum wage, uh, thinking on the minimum wage from a neoliberal standpoint. So here I just kind of take my cue from the economic experts. Mm -hmm. I, I have actually read uh, a good amount of research on this. The minimum wage research tends to show that minimum wage does not discourage employment. The traditional worry about minimum wage is that if you have a minimum wage, it's going to lead to people being unemployed. It's going to cause people to lose their jobs. Unemployment will rise. Research shows that this doesn't really happen, at least for moderate levels of the minimum wage. I think that traditionally, when the 15 minimum wage movement started, I was a little bit worried that 15 minimum wage could be appropriate in some like large cities, but it might not be appropriate nationally. That, you know, in, in rural Kansas, 15 minimum wage could be too high. But that's an empirical question. We can test that. With recent inflation, you know, the longer this inflation keeps going, the less 15 minimum wage is an issue because it kind of— uh, Because it, do it doesn't go as far. Yeah, it sure. doesn't go as far. So so I'm, I'm a little bit less worried about that now. But in general, yes, minimum wages empirically seem to be okay. Okay. I just want to pause for a second because, again, I think that traditional critics of neoliberalism would be surprised to hear that it's consistent with neoliberalism to have some kind of like government provided health care or at least some model that includes a big role for the government in the healthcare system and that it's also consistent with a higher minimum wage. And I want to acknowledge that within neoliberalism, there might be some disagreements about this too. Not every neoliberal, you guys are not all the same. So anyways, I just wanted to flag that because I think it's super interesting. And it raises another question, by the way, which is that the kind of uh, model for neoliberalism that you just described, where you let the markets work and then at the end of that wealth creation process, you redistribute the gains from it to make sure that everybody benefits. That is a model of redistribution. There have been arguments, you know, in recent years, decades, that a pre-distribution model for the labor market is also appropriate, which means that you do actually interfere a little bit with how the market works, but in ways that might still lead to more equitable or fair outcomes. And I think the minimum wage is a pretty good example of that. There might be some other policies that fit that definition too, but I'm just kind of curious to get what your thoughts are on that. With these kinds of policies, one of my typical starting questions is, does this break the market? Does this break 
something important when it's implemented. And usually this is an empirical question, something we can actually gather evidence on and see. In the case of the minimum wage, it certainly seems like for moderate minimum wages, there's there's no breakage. The, the market operates just fine. The labor market might even work a little bit better with a moderate minimum wage. And, and so it seems okay. There okay. are other things that I'm more suspicious of. And I'll give an example of occupational licensing, for instance. Advocates of occupational licensing often say, oh, well, this is, you know, there's a lot of minorities and uh, people who, who are lower income in these who are raised up by being, you know, getting their barber's license or getting their this or that. And I typically find those arguments really poor. And I believe that the opposite is actually true, that those licensing requirements often end up hurting some of the poorest workers, some of uh, particularly vulnerable workers, minority workers. Let me let me just really quickly define occupational licensing again for listeners who aren't familiar with the concept. Mm-hmm. This is the idea that there are some jobs, some occupations that require a lengthy training period during which you, at the end of it, you get a license so that you can actually legally participate in it. So if, if it's a job that requires a license, then essentially you have to sometimes pay a lot of money for that education, for that training to get the license. And then only at the end of that process can you start working in that field. Now, what that means is that the people who are already working in that field are, are, are somewhat defended against new people entering the field as well. So yes, they're, they're Salaries are going to be high if they're defended from competition. And there are some jobs where it makes a certain amount of sense for there to be some licensing process, right? You want doctors to have a medical degree. You want lawyers to have a law degree. But there's a lot of jobs where maybe it's just excessive to force, for example, a barber, as you mentioned, to take a one or 2,000 hour class, right, before they can be barbers when maybe they can just get training at wherever they want to work. So you'd have more barbers now if... You didn't force people to get that license. Yeah, and the scale of some of these licensing requirements is enormous. You know, we're talking about thousands of hours, 1,500 hours to become a cosmetologist, 2,500 hours to become a barber. There are states that license interior designers. There are states that license florists. I don't have all these examples in front of me, but it it reaches towards the absurd, and it's growing. It's something like 25% of all workers are now required to have a license. And that number keeps trending up over time. And it basically just seems like protectionism for incumbents. The, you know, you can do kind of cross-state references where this state will only require 1,000 hours for a barber. This state will require 2,500. You know, are there more accidents of, of barbary? If that's a word, right. are there more, you know, fatal scissors accidents in these states or any, is there any difference of any kind? No, there's no yeah. difference. If, of- if a non-doctor tries to cut out your appendix, you might die, right? Yeah. But if a barber gives you a bad haircut, it's fine. <laughs> well, and some people will be like, <laughs> so you well, don't need the protection. Co- cosmetologists right? use really dangerous chemicals. But again, you can do this comparison. Do the, the low hour states have any difference in outcomes in the high hour states? And the answer is every single time, no. Okay. There's some states that require more hours tra- of training to become a cosmetologist than to become a police officer. Okay. Like, it's it's crazy. So that's just an instance to bring us back where I would say, you know, pre-distribution or kind of labor market meddling is not successful, and we would want to get rid of that. You mentioned universal basic income earlier, and a lot of people sort of think of universal basic income as like 
the your neoliberal policy, right? I mean, like, uh, uh, if there is a neoliberal policy, universal basic income is it. Universal basic income, by the way, is, for our listeners, the idea that every month, everybody, so it's universal, gets the same exact amount of money essentially sent to them by the government from that is raised through taxation. Um, but you have absolute autonomy for what you do with the money. It's just, it's an income. That's where the income comes from. The basic part is meant to imply that it's enough for you to live on if, for example, you know, you lose your job for a few months and you're looking for a new job, then universal basic income gives you a little bit of a cushion. And even when you aren't looking for a new job or you're not unemployed, it gives you a little bit more labor market flexibility, a little bit more power, bargaining power in the labor market because you're being paid a universal basic income. And that this can be used in lieu of other kinds of tax and distribution programs. It's simpler. It gives you freedom for how you use the money. And it doesn't establish this like huge bureaucracy that can often be wasteful or even corrupt in some cases. So that's universal basic income. And I'm kind of curious to know if that is still like a neoliberal policy that is uh, advocated today by by either the neoliberal project, your group, or other neoliberals? Like, where does that fit on the sort of spectrum of policies that, that you support or don't support? It's not one of the policies that we explicitly support, but um, one of the phrases I like to use is, I am UBI curious, um, which <laughs> in, in text becomes like bi-curious, which is, it's a great pun. Um, but I, I am curious and I am optimistic that maybe in the future a UBI system could work. I have not seen a great proposal for actually implementing it to this point, but there are some principles that I like to uphold when it comes to the welfare state. I think that cash is preferable to complicated schemes. There's a big problem with the American welfare state where we give you a voucher for this and a coupon for that and a complicated form that you can only spend on this and then a block grant to states to do specific programs for block... And just it's this nightmare level of bureaucracy. And then we also make it really difficult for people to access. You know, there's I've heard horror stories. I've brought people on my podcast where they talk about the obstacles people face, the practical realities of getting like welfare assistance money. There's stories like I'm trying to think just quickly. One of the most ridiculous stories is that in Arkansas, there's a complicated website you have to access to get some program. And the website is only open 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. They turn off the website outside of business hours. So if you've got a job and you're working and you're poor, you're a member of the working poor class, good luck, I guess. Like, it's one of the most absurd things I've ever heard. And you can just find instances Turning of this Turning off a kind website of is, a, is a kind of an absurd yeah. like, idea. And yeah. I mean, part of this, this, this is a libertarian instinct, I think, to prefer cash over complicated schemes. You know, if, if anybody out there has ever read James Scott seeing like a state... I think we tend to underrate the number of ways that complex schemes can fail. Even when we think they're really well designed, complexity hurts in most programs. And so you want something that's simple, that can't be screwed up, and generally cash is best. And so that's why I'm sympathetic to the UBI. I also am sympathetic to schemes that will try to concentrate money in the places where it's most importantly used, which is, you know, the most disadvantaged members of our society. You'd be surprised how much of our welfare spending is not focused that way. You know, especially if you think about welfare spending, it's also including things like the mortgage uh, interest deduction for homeowners. We have massive, massive middle and upper middle class welfare schemes, welfare schemes that almost entirely would benefit 
the middle and upper middle classes and not really the lower classes. And and so that's something I worry about as well. When this I, is like the mortgage interest deduction and yeah. things like that. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of parts of our tax code and our social welfare state that that are not built to really target the people who need the most help. Yeah. Yeah. So the, those are just the principles I think of. I'm I'm sympathetic to UBI and we'll see maybe maybe in the future we have it. Yeah, the it brings up the issue of universality versus establishing tests for who can access programs as well. I sometimes think of Social Security, right, where everybody gets something out of Social Security in retirement. I think that's part of the reason why it's so broadly popular. You can't really point to it and say, well, this is, you know, this is something for only one part of the population. And rich people can't say, well, this is poor people just trying to like leech off of the rest of us or whatever. When it's universal, it's a little bit more immune from those types of criticisms, right? Um, on the other hand, pointing to something that is, let's say, means tested, where it's a program that's only accessible to like lower income folks, you know, that can also help shield it from political opposition because people then are saying, well, it's not wasteful. Um, so anyways, yeah, no, it's, I, it's kind of an interesting sort of like tension there, it seems to me. I think there's a political catch-22 where politically the, the programs that have been the most long-term popular, I think you're correct, are universal. Things like uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, they are improved in popularity politically because they are so universal. Everybody past a certain age uh, can can access them. But if you do short-term polling, means testing and, and kind of these harsh measures tend to poll very well. Don't let people get welfare unless they're looking for jobs and you have a bunch of strict requirements about how many forms they have to fill out, about how many jobs. they've. That, that tends to poll well, and it's unfortunate, I think. That's catch-22 number one. Catch-22 number two is that you can make these kind of things equivalent. You can either do means testing, let's just give money to the, the very poor, or you can do let's just give money to everybody and then kind of tax rich people a little bit more. So it, it comes out the same. You know, the rich people are actually losing because they get the payment, but they're taxed more. The middle class people come out even because they get taxed a little more, but they get the payment. And the poor people come out way ahead because they get the payment. That would be the same thing as just give poor people money. And it would be universal. And maybe we could have more popularity. But then you have to deal with the issue of raising taxes, which Americans don't like. You know, if we're talking about this in, in the context of the United States, Americans, it's just not super popular for somebody to run on, I'm going to raise your taxes. It's why you see Joe Biden bending over backwards to say, I'm going to raise taxes on the rich, but the rich means only people with $400,000 of yearly income or above, which is this tiny group of people. And just look, the reality that we're going to have to confront at some point is you cannot build a European style welfare state on just taxes on the 1%. You would have to build a broader tax base that actually taxes the middle class significantly, if that's your final goal. And I think there's a lot of conflicted preferences there. Eventually, we're going to have to choose. Are we taxing the middle class or not? Are we having a, a larger social welfare, welfare state or not? Okay. And neoliberalism is all about embracing the trade-offs, or does it take a clear stance on the taxation, for example, of the middle class? It doesn't take a clear stance on exactly how high, you know, should government spending as a percentage of GDP be 20% or 25%. Like, that's a silly debate to have in some sense. We're not going to pick a number and then defend it to the death. But we do worry about those principles that I talked about. Systems should be efficient. It should be equitable. Cash is preferable to complicated schemes. And we just focus on the people who actually need the help the most. I just want to stop for a minute and again 
flag some things. So this has been a constant theme in the chat because I think it's really important and might help to increase understanding between neoliberals, the neoliberal project, and the folks who uh, criticize neoliberalism. You've made the point that neoliberalism is open to certain kinds of antitrust policy, combating monopolies or monopsonies where it's appropriate, not in every case, right? But in some cases, you mentioned telecoms, healthcare systems, okay? Uh, You mentioned that neoliberalism is also consistent with government involvement in the healthcare system, okay? That it's consistent with a higher minimum wage, depending on what's justified by the economic research on this, which is, you know, sort of in flux, but it has been moving in the direction of essentially saying that modest rises in the minimum wage don't lead to people being thrown out of work. Uh, And you've said that neoliberalism is maybe not taking a firm stance on, but open to the idea that taxes could go up, not just on the richest, but also on, let's say, the upper middle class, even if it doesn't say explicitly where the line necessarily should be drawn. I say all this again because I think this would actually shock a lot of people who have an idea in mind of neoliberalism as something else, something that would actually oppose um the stances that I just gave rise to. And I'm curious to know if like you get a lot of sort of pushback on neoliberalism based on a misunderstanding of these ideas. And if you actually think that there are some areas where neoliberalism and its critics actually agree, if only we could all get past like our sort of embedded understanding of the word itself. I do think there's room for a a lot of agreement. And it's funny, we have this business card that we use as kind of like a advertisement. We hand them out sometimes. It's got the two to three word phrases that are like pithy and we think encapsulate us well. It's the marketing angle. Yeah, you've and, got it open on your screen as, as we speak, in fact. And what I get when I show this to people, there's a lot of people who are like, huh, well, I, I didn't like neoliberalism, but I like most of this stuff. <laughs> you know, all this, all this sounds pretty good to me. There's, we get that reaction a lot. Like people who didn't expect to like us look at the, the list of seven or eight things we have and say, well, that sounds pretty good. Can you actually just read them, like just tick them off uh, one by one? Sure. So we call this the We Believe card. Okay. We believe in economic growth through free markets. We believe in a robust social safety net. We believe in the free flow of people and goods. We believe in deregulating barriers to housing and employment. We believe in immediate criminal justice reform, a tech-optimistic society, a tax on carbon, freedom regardless of your gender, age, race, religion, or sexual orientation, and pragmatism over populism. Mm -hmm. And so people see that and they're like, yeah, I mean, I don't find a lot to disagree with there. And, you know, obviously there's implementations when you just kind of broadly say a robust social safety net that that leaves a lot of room for nuance in what we're actually going to do. But I think that... Yeah, but if you asked a libertarian, they'd say, no, I don't believe in a robust social safety net, right? Yeah, but he, and, and by the way, I don't mean that as an accusation. I think they would say, no, I think a robust social safety net is bad for the economy or something like that. I think we've actually managed to snip off a pretty good chunk of libertarian world. There's libertarians who are the kind of hard lines who really believe all government is evil and n- government force is basically always bad. Oh, snip off, you mean like libertarians who have now joined the yes. neoliberal movement, right? Yes, we, we've managed to kind of capture part of that. Not the hardliners, but the libertarians who just, you know, they love markets and they love globalism, immigration, trade, and they want to deregulate the barriers to housing too. And they're social liberals who care about, you know, ending sexism and racism. And they don't mind a little bit of social spending, too, if we can get all this other stuff. 
we've captured a lot of those, I think. Last question. Uh, what is the neoliberal project especially concerned with right now? What are the big sort of global topics uh, that the neoliberal project is pursuing at the moment? I would say right now what we're working on is just not a specific policy. There's a lot of policies we care about, but activating our chapters and and really turning them into real organizing hubs. We want our members out there attending city council meetings and protesting for new housing and out there trying to meet with their local elected representatives and advocate for changes to policing and, you know, running for those local positions themselves, becoming involved in party apparatus so they can help make these decisions and just becoming involved. And we've been having a lot of movement on that front. It's I'm, I'm very encouraged by the amount of members we have who are out there doing the work. And that's really the focus for us is, you know, converting some of these people who are just kind of like internet posters, in, in a sense, into actual activists who are out there doing the work. Because that's what you need. If you, you know, if you want to change the world, that's what you've got to do. You've got to do the work. All right. Well, Jeremiah Johnson, this has been a great and clarifying conversation uh, for me and I, and I think for our listeners, too. So thanks for being on The New Bazaar. Very happy to be here. And that's our show for this week. You can find links to the Neoliberal Project and the Neoliberal Podcast in the show notes for this episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.